Ladies and gentlemen, I've traveled over half our state to be here tonight. I couldn't get away sooner because my new well was coming in at Coyote Hills and I had to see about it. That well is now flowing at 2,000 barrels and it's paying me an income of $5,000 a week. I have two others drilling and I have 16 producing at Antelope, so... Ladies and gentlemen, if I say I'm an oil man, you will agree. Now, you have a great chance here. But bear in mind, you can lose it all if you're not careful. Out of all men that beg for a chance to drill your rods, maybe one in 20 will be oil men. The rest will be speculators. That's men trying to get between you and the oil men to get some of the money that ought by rights come to you. Even if you find one that has money and means to drill, he'll maybe know nothing about drilling. He'll have to hire the job out on contract, and then you're depending on a contractor will rush the job through so he can get another contract just as quick as he can. This is the way that this works. Well, what is your offer? We're, we're wasting yes. time. Yes. Please. I do my own drilling. And the men that work for me work for me. And they are men I know. I make it my business to be there and to see their work. I don't lose my tools in the hole and spend months fishing for them. I don't botch the cementing off and let water in the hole and ruin the whole lease. I'm a family man. I run a family business. This is my son and my partner, H.W. Plainview. We offer you the bond of family that very few oil men can understand. Welcome to Squadcast Movies. This is the podcast where we review and discuss the films that we love to watch. Yeah, we're passionate about quality filmmaking. We want to share it with you. So thanks for joining us tonight. Let's get started. My name is Tim. And I'm Scott, and we are the Squadcast. And we're here for Tim's movie, Tim's <laughs> second choice in this you know new show that we are launching. We started off with a Tim choice with Whiplash. We followed it up with one of my choices, which was No Country for Old Men. And then we followed up for a movie from the exact same year that Tim chose. And what was that movie this time, Tim? That is Paul Thomas Anderson's There Will Be Blood. And this is a film you had not seen up to this point. No, this was a first-time viewing ever for me. Yeah. So I was glad you picked it, though, because it was definitely one of those movies. It's one of those movies that I go, I I need to watch that sometime. Yeah. And you just gave me the kick in the pants I needed to finally make that happen. Absolutely. I mean, this is one of these films that, you know, when it comes to Daniel Day-Lewis, it's almost like a Christopher Nolan film. It's like an event film. Like, you know, whenever he does a film, it's one of these things like, I need to go see it because you know you're going to get a real special acting performance from him. So I was really surprised you hadn't seen this thing. And in fact, yeah. I, I'm actually surprised you haven't seen any Paul Thomas Anderson films like Magnolia or Boogie Nights, Punch Drunk Love. I I, I want to qualify that by saying I've never seen a complete Paul okay. Thomas That's Anderson fine. film. Yeah. Because like you mentioned Magnolia, I've seen like the opening scene from Magnolia. Okay. Like that that first scene with Thomas, Thomas Cruise. Tom Cruise. <laughs> 
shoes. Yeah. I was making it fancy. <laughs> uh, I've seen that scene, but I've not seen the rest of the movie. Okay. And then I looked at the rest of his filmography, and it's like, no, no, I, I haven't seen any of these other movies. Now, before anyone gets on my case, I will say that it was on sale on iTunes, so I've already picked up The Master. So that's definitely going to be my next Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Okay, very good. Well, I'm I'm glad I helped you to kind of burst that bubble a little bit. So, yeah. So, like, bef- I, you know, I really want to start talking about this film, but let's get on with some of our little standard announcements. Guys, we're part of the Squadcast Media. There's a few of the shows we encourage you to go check out. DC Film Squadcast, that's the other show that Scott and I do. We have DC Comics Squadcast, DC TV Squadcast, Fans Without Borders, and Marvel Squadcast. Uh, most of these shows are kind of in the the DC Comics uh, corner of the universe, but, you know, as you can tell, we're starting to expand out, aren't we? Oh, yeah, because we, lo- we love talking about movies. That is quite true. It's the reason this podcast, it's the reason we started podcasting in the first place. That's right. And to that end, we want to take this opportunity to thank of all of our patrons over at patreon.com slash squadcastmedia where $5 a month does give you access to an exclusive RSS feed with a whole host of Patreon exclusives that does include review shows like Fans of the Borders Plus where Brent, where Ray and I review current movies that we are watching. We've actually got one planned for this coming weekend. There's a Netflix original that we're going to check out. And there's also the comic book movie edition of Squadcast Movies where hosts from the network review every comic book film ever made. Yeah, and we have gone through uh, 38 films now, and it has been quite a journey. In fact, uh, the last film we had actually reviewed uh, prior to this recording is going to be quite different <laughs> in terms of our reaction, but we'll save that for another day. Yeah, a lot more appreciation <laughs> is going to be flowing during this review. Yes, yes. So, anyway, so guys, uh, for all of you that are able to support, we appreciate all the support you've given us. Uh, you really help us kind of keep the lights on, we appreciate all that support. Uh, if you'd like to, you know, be part of Squadcast Media, in terms of uh, you know somebody that's able to kind of help us keep going, you could always go to patreon.com slash squadcastmedia. All right, let's get on with this film. All right, so I always feel like you pick the movie, you get to start it. Okay. So big picture ideas. I mean, I guess it really just comes down to why did you pick this movie, Tim? You know, I mean, the biggest reason I picked this film, and, you know, and it had been a little while since I had seen it. You know, this came out in 2007. Uh, but my biggest memory of this film was just like how special the acting performance was. I mean, Daniel Day-Lewis just puts on the... This, this this clinic in terms of like you know uh, method acting and getting into the role and really uh, just disappearing into a character and you see that with Daniel Day Lewis and so many of the films that he does it, like he becomes somebody completely different and that to me is like when you see an actor that's able to do that that's that's somebody you know you're seeing something very special when you can see an actor disappear and you don't really see that actor anymore uh, to me that's kind of that's a performance that I, I definitely want to kind of tune into and that was like my biggest memory of this film is just how, how incredibly captivating uh, Daniel Day-Lewis was in his film. Uh, in fact, uh, he, he's such a, he's so powerful. Uh, one of the things that's so striking to me the most about this film is in, as you get into it, it's just centralized on just him as a character and for the first 14 minutes of this film, there's no dialogue. All you see is the the slow story kind of being built up to developing Daniel Plainview uh, as a character, as this guy who is just, you know, he, he, he's trying to, to kind of, you know, be, on a, in a entrepreneurial type of sense he wants to kind of build up his wealth and he starts off as like a uh, he's, he's hunting for silver and then they the the film very methodically spends a lot of time now he's down in this well by himself digging for the silver and and I really love how the film really kind of slowly progresses and showing you all these very mundane scenes but to me they're very quite powerful in trying to get you an idea and a feeling what this character is all about and then 14 minutes in you finally gets the first dialogue uh, from Daniel Day-Lewis and and it's it's so captivating and powerful. And so for 
for me, that is the thing I, that I just most enjoy about this film. Not even getting into the story and all the, the the interesting things that Paul Thomas Anderson is trying to say with this film. I can't disagree with anything that you just said. Once again, coming from a guy who had never seen this movie before, had never seen a Paul Thomas Anderson film before. So I I really had no idea what I was what I was in for because I'm not familiar with the director's style. And I knew I knew he was an auteur. I knew that he was the kind of director who it's like people like him, people don't like him, but he makes his kind of movies. And what I would say from my initial viewing of this film is it's a movie that I love the parts more than I like the sum. This is by no means me saying it's a bad movie. I think it's a very well crafted movie. I think it's a very well made movie. But I will say that overall as a movie, it is not a film that I get the urge to go back and rewatch anytime terribly soon, while at the same time, I'm dissecting different pieces and parts as I watch the movie. The acting, which is part none, the cinematography, the production design, the music. It was it was a very different experience for me watching a movie where I love these pieces. I loved all the parts that made up the movie, yet I didn't quite have this OMG, I, I, I adore this film when looking at how all the pieces fit together as much as I can lavish praise on the individual pieces themselves. Yeah. And it was a weird place for me to be there. No, I mean, I, 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 I could totally see it. I, you know, there are so many parts of the production of this film and part of the, you know, different aspects of this filmmaking process that are just phenomenal. But it's, uh, you know, it's, it, it's kind of an uncomfortable story ultimately in the end, you know? And so like, I can see, I can see and completely understand where you're coming from in terms of like, you know, you not feeling this overwhelming, like I just saw something so special and, and, and dare I say, maybe rewarding or something that just kind of, you know, gave you some really kind of special feelings inside. Well, that's not what this film's going to do. No, no, no. no. This movie's not going to make, it's going to make you feel very desolate in a lot of ways. Well, desolate is the landscape, I think is, is a very good point to bring up. Uh, I, I think when I boil down why this movie doesn't 100% connect with me is because this is a movie about characters. This is not a movie about the story. Right. And I've seen those movies before. I've appreciated and loved those kind of four. Oftentimes, it's something you appreciate more like the second or third time around when you go, okay, I'm watching this for the characters. I'm not watching this plot. Because there's not a real A to B story here. It's more just watching the characters do things and watching the choices they make and how those choices have an effect. Now, Aristotle would tell you that's plot. Character makes a choice. We move on to the next thing based on the character's choice, but it doesn't always make for the most compelling viewing from a story perspective. That's where I find myself with this movie. Yeah. I can watch the performances all day long. I can watch all the other stuff all day long, but my mind wanders during. Yeah, and and part of that is because, you know, you're you're telling the story about a loner because that's what Daniel Plainview is. He's a loner. You know, you never see him with anyone like in terms of like a romantic relationship. He's not married, doesn't have any children. He ends up adopting a child. But that's then that's kind of one of the interesting little uh subplots to him as a character. I mean, he's adopting his child because he's got ulterior motives, right? And so you, you kind of get the sense of loneliness, which really kind of tracks with what, you know, what Daniel Plainview really is. I mean, in fact, he even says it in the film that he wants to get enough money so that he can be wealthy enough that he doesn't have to be around people. And I'm kind of paraphrasing the way he said it, but, you know, and, and that's the character you have. And so it's, 
it's really it's it's all the really bad and damaging things that he does in his life that really affects his adopted son hw plainview uh and then even other people that he's interacting with and so it's it's not a it's not a story like like let's put this like citizen kane it's not that kind of a story mm-hmm. citizen kane is kind of telling you like the story of this man's life right and mm-hmm. and it has it has like some triumphant moments and some sad moments and and it has like these touching and compelling moments throughout the film that's what not that's not what this one is this one is just kind of it's kind of a sad existence really no because there are huge swaths of his life that are just completely skipped over the movie chooses to focus on integral moments in his life where he makes terrible poor decisions that will then 10 years down the road because there's always like these five to ten year time jumps throughout the movie it's like well how did he get here well it's because he did this thing over here and we're gonna skip over everything in between to get to the ultimate tragedy of his character because while i was watching this movie daniel uh, daniel plainview is most definitely that classic tragic hero type character where he's constantly making the poor decisions because of some sort of tragic flaw in this case his sense of competition his sense of greed however you want to interpret what is off about Daniel and that's what drives him to make terrible decisions that then have increasingly terrible consequences and that is the definition of a class tragedy and so I feel like this is showing that entrepreneur that I have to win at all costs and however you want to interpret what Paul Thomas Anderson is trying to say in this film with a character like Daniel, what is he commenting on specifically? That's what leads to Daniel's downfall by the end of the film. Yeah, I mean, he's such an such an interesting character ultimately. Uh, but clearly, a lot of what Paul Thomas Anderson is really trying to say in this film, he ties it very much so with religion. And in fact, I think there was something really interesting that he kind of toyed with in in the script and uh, as one of the themes throughout this film, really kind of talking about the idea of a false prophet. And uh, and we haven't really talked so much about this character yet, but I mean, obviously the his his biggest foil throughout this entire film is Eli Sunday, who is a preacher and also the son of uh, a landowner who he basically kind of swindled into giving him uh, this piece of land that he knew had this very valuable oil on it. And I find, I find this whole parallel between what Daniel kind of sees as his religion in a lot of ways, which is really the oil. Like you could just say, basically say that he worships oil or he worships God. In in Daniel Plainview's case, he's worshiping the oil because like that's that's the thing that's going to give him everything that he wants. That's going to give him his salvation ultimately. And then you take Eli Sunday, the preacher, who you know, in a sense, like he's worshiping God. Like so, he, they have two different things that are kind of driving them. But then this whole idea of false prophet is introduced, and it was and it's really first applied to Eli by Daniel Plainview at the end of the film, and he says, you know, you you know, I need you to admit that you were a false prophet in this film. And what's interesting is is in a lot of ways, you might as well put a mirror between him and Eli because Daniel Plainview is very much a false prophet as well. Because all the stuff that he promised to be, that he tried to say that he was going to be to these townspeople that he was swindling, you know, that they were going to be bringing in, uh, uh, you know, they're going to be bringing in roads, they're going to be bringing in agriculture, and they're going to be bringing in uh, school for their children, and they're going to have bread was no longer going to be a luxury. All this stuff was like stuff that he was basically selling to these people. So he 
was he was selling himself as one thing, but really his motivations were something different. And so I, I, I think, you know, if I were to watch this film a couple more times, I'd be really interested to kind of explore that whole idea of both Daniel and Eli both being false prophets. Well, yeah, because you've also got Eli who played wonderfully creepily by Paul Dano, uh, who represents a facet of religion, so much so that as I was watching this movie, one, uh, you question how much of Eli is there a legitimate faith in what he's doing, or how much is this a con on Eli's part as well? Because you look at the what I'm going to call the performance that he gives in church as he is casting out the spirits you know and he's the laying of the hands and the and the 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 production that he's putting on of physically throwing evil spirits out of people as if a as if a person possessed by a spirit you could actually like you actually need to like fling your body around the church to get the spirit out of this body and then by the end when he's become wealthy because he's become a radio preacher but he's suffered some financial downturns and he needs some money and you're because you hear him talk throughout the movie i mean one of the first things he says to daniel is i want ten thousand dollars for my church and he's all about the money and then when he's all about the money when it comes time for the derrick to open in in little boston eli it's like he wants tension he wants the he wants the spotlight moment to put a blessing on the derrick and that is really when the antagonism between these two characters begins is when daniel basically metaphorically gives him the finger and says no i'm going i'm going to spotlight your little sister who gets beaten by your abusive father because she doesn't pray enough i'm going to give her a moment to shine and i'm literally not even going to mention you once and so you really can and i do question his core motivation as a as a preacher in this movie because there were many many times i felt he was being disingenuous the entire time as if he himself was running his own con yeah so i mean it makes you wonder is that you know did daniel recognize that and right away see you know he's he's considering him to be a fraud and that's why he was unwilling to ever give him the money that he had promised you know for the church and that's why he was unwilling to give him the spotlight that he had been looking for at the blessing of the derrick uh and so is that why daniel just never treated him well and it because that was always interesting to me like he, he could have just given some money to this this family or to this guy like you know because of the land that they gave up they gave him great wealth and he was just never able to do that so like what was that reason so i'm wondering if the point that you're making there is is really what it what it is that daniel just saw him as a false prophet and wasn't going to allow him to benefit from it well he also daniel also has that moment where he's sitting at that table at i guess what you call it the opening day celebration and he talks to i think her name's mary yes talks to mary and you almost don't catch the fact that daddy sunday is sitting 
sitting across the table from him. Right. And Daniel's telling Mary, have you been a good girl? No more beatings. No one should ever do that to you. In front of the guy who he's basically calling out for doing the beatings. And so you get the sense. And and this is another thing that is very gray about Daniel is, you know, you talked earlier about how he adopts H.W. to be a prop for his oil business. But there are times where he has actual intimate love for H.W. when he's not in a spotlight. In a private moment where he doesn't have to be put on a show. And so you do begin to look at Daniel and go, does he have this love and appreciation for H.W. that then, of course, is hurt by his internal flaw of his greed and his competition you might call it the american dream you know it depends on again depends on how far you want to take where what the statement of this movie is supposed to be and then you see moments like where he takes care and concern for mary because he doesn't like what daddy sunday does and and so you can see who he's got problems with which makes you question his motivation. Right. So it, it also makes you wonder, does he automatically have problems with religion and people that have faith? I think that's made pretty clear in that first scene where Paul shows up, which I have to completely admit the fact that as I was watching the movie for the first time, I did not realize that when Paul Dano first showed up as Paul, that that was a different character <laughs> yeah. than when he shows up as Eli a few minutes later, because somehow I missed the line of dialogue that mentioned that these were twin brothers. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, thinking back to my original viewing, I think I had that same thing happen to me. Because I remember I remember late in the film, just suddenly realizing, like, wait a minute, that was a different brother? I'm like, oh, it kind of clicked to me. And and I think now that you mentioned this, I, I think back at the time, I was like, I need to watch this film again. Because I, I obviously didn't catch that. So uh, I think that's a that's probably a very common problem with this. And and to me, that's also a very interesting thing about this whole film. Uh, it's, it's very explicitly said by the, by the voice of... Of Eli and his brother Paul. Is it Paul? Yes, because I, I love the the fact that Daniel Day Lewis is playing a character called Daniel yeah. and Paul Dano is <laughs> playing a character called Paul. Yeah. So I mean Paul's the first uh character that we see played by Paul Dano. And the only time we ever see him is in that first interaction with, with Daniel Plainview. And his motivation is to to try to get some money from Daniel Plainview to give him some information about some land that he knows has oil on it because it's seeping right on, on top of the ground. It's so close and it's so abundant there yeah i am so sorry and i, I cannot tell you how many times the beverly hill billy's theme song started playing through my <laughs> head it just happened <laughs> i this is not the type of podcast to mention the beverly hill billies but it strangely is the movie to mention it uh black gold <laughs> texas tea yeah <laughs> so anyway we all remember that but yeah it's it and it's funny because so you, you see him and then we never see him again in the film and from that point on all we see his his twin brother eli and i don't know that it's ever really explained explicitly explained so much that they're brothers like it's only it's only explained to us kind of in a couple really small moments in passing and in fact when we first meet Eli also played by Paul Dano uh, they never talk about the brother no they do not they don't and it, and it's not until later after Eli had or like Eli and his father they had basically sold off the property to Daniel and then the realization that you know they made a bad deal that Eli gets upset at his father and says it was your son that did this that sold off this property you know that that told Daniel Plainview about it and then at and then at the same time but you never hear his like father
bother really saying anything. So it made me wonder, was this all part of Eli's false prophecy? Basically, like Eli's acting as a preacher, but yet he's got all these temptations and he's got this greed and he's got this desire for money. Did he go off on the side and pretend to be a twin and go off and find Daniel Plainview just so he can get some money? I think you're going a little too deep fake with that. I, that just sounds way too tinfoil hat for me. I'm sorry. I don't know, but I don't know. I'm, I'm just curious if that's not... Um, if that's not something that's inferred but never fully explained to us. And so it just kind of made me wonder, you know, is that, was that part of who Eli was as he was, you know, he was starting to kind of go out into the world, which which is explained later on that he, you know, he went out into the world and made lots of mistakes. And- the only thing that I feel like really pokes a hole in that theory is how Daniel uses Paul as a weapon against Eli in the final scene in the bowling alley. Paul did that. Like the whole, like, like he's, like he's trying to, he's trying to beat into Eli how worthless or inadequate that he is because no, your brother got 500 bucks and got to run off and live his life. And now you're the one stuck doing this. No, it wasn't you. It was Paul. Or was he talking about, you know, that version of his personality? You know what I mean? When you were trying to be this character, this character was successful. So I don't know. That's, I'm sorry. you're just working it too hard for, for my for my taste. <laughs> no, but it's it's genuinely something I was thinking about, right? So I mean, it it, it was it's um to me it's a it's a genuine possibility, and uh, and I, so I'd be curious to see if you know Paul Thomas Anderson ever said anything along those lines and revealed any of those. Yeah, because I don't have a physical copy of this movie, and the digital copy doesn't come with a commentary no, track. It doesn't. So uh. yeah, you know, I think now that you mentioned, it, I think I may have a physical copy of this. I'm gonna have to go check. Ooh, have to yeah. Let me know. Yeah, so. but yeah, I mean. So, you know, that that whole that whole theme, I, I think, is very interesting. The, it's quite parallel in terms of um, in terms of like uh, the real motivations for the two characters throughout this film. But I, the one that really kind of struck me the most in this was really the score motifs that we got in this film. They're so striking. Oh, the music was so it, it stood out, but not in a negative way. Like there were moments where the dissonance between the score I was listening to and the image I was seeing like the picture I was looking at would not have given me any emotions but the score would give me this sense of dread that it was so funny because there was one moment where like it's a shot over valley or landscape and there's just this yes music and I remember I was I was watching on my iPad at the kitchen table and my boys were just feet away watching TV and they like turned around and freaked out like <laughs> oh I don't like that no turn that down that's not that that's creepy like it was it was having that effect on my children yeah they call that like a droning sound uh that was that's something that for those of you that have seen Dark Knight and Hans Zimmer's uh theme Joker theme for that film it's a very disconcerting uncomfortable, rising, dissonant, swelling sound. And that's exactly what we got with this one. And it was, what was real interesting is the the film actually opens with that same score, uh, that little motif. And it, and it gives you this really uncomfortable f- feeling like something bad is happening. Like this is the beginning of kind of like bad things. And that's what I kind of tie that to. So you get that right at the opening title. Uh, it also happened when, um, really when he was beginning his, his accumulation of wealth, you get that mm-hmm. score coming again. 
again. And so that was like, again, I, I kind of tie that to is like, okay, this is where the kind of root of some bad stuff is really, really began at this point. And then uh, the, the, the real striking one was when, you know, and later on in the film, he has somebody that enters into his life who says that he's his half brother. Well, there's a point in time where Daniel realizes that this guy's a fraud and he's not his half brother. He's just this guy, basically, whatever his motivations are, he's trying to get into his life. Which, by the way, I want to say it right now. I'm sorry to interrupt your thought, but then that also ties into this sort of false prophet idea that you had. Exactly. There's always these characters who are pretending to be something that they're not. Right. Thank you. No, I'm glad you interjected that. But at any rate, uh, there's that point in time where Daniel, and it's and it's acted so well by Daniel Day-Lewis, where he just realizes it, and you could see it on his facial expressions. Like, he realizes that this guy is a fraud, and he goes and runs and gets into the ocean. He's just kind of swimming by himself in the ocean, and then that's where this music kind of kicks in again. The score, this very disconcerting score. And then, of course, like shortly after that, you know, Daniel Plainview murders him. <laughs> so, you know, so it's like they, that was such an effective use, that little that little motif that they used. Uh, I really like that one. Uh, and then there's like, you know, you talked about this little chaotic one. Uh, there was the one where Daniel Plainview had rescued his son, H.W., from the well where he actually lost his hearing. And when he's running him back, carrying him to, to try to see if he's okay, taking him to put him on a table in the mess hall, you get this really strange, chaotic, off-rhythm beats. It was it was just so, I don't know, it, it was just such an interesting choice that they used at that point in time. Yeah, yeah I mean, the, the music was interesting because it's also not just one continuous score. It's like selections of pieces throughout. There was like, a, there was a composer, but he composed like two or three pieces that were then interspersed with like Brahms and other things that really disjointed parts of the film. And I'm not saying that as a criticism. I'm saying that it, it, it adds to sort of the, I would almost make it analogous to the ups and downs of the success. Like things are terrible, then things are great, but then things are terrible again. And the music just kind of seesaws between all these emotions, almost what it would be like to be an oil man at the turn of the century, where you're it, there's this constant boom and bust. Yeah. Yeah, it was... It was done so well, and the other thing about the score is it was done. It was used so sparingly, and and that was that's what I really kind of enjoyed it because it really allowed you to kind of take in some of the scenes without feeling like you're hearing all these other inputs coming into your head. Um, there was one last little motif that uh, was played out in this film uh, from a score standpoint, and it was like this really energetic, kind of like happy celebratory score, which is actually how the movie ends. Which is which how is the movie really... ends, which is interesting yes. because because really the first time you actually hear that score is when he's beginning his plans uh you know all these plans of his are starting to come together where he's kind of figuring out oh i could buy up this piece of land and i could buy up this piece of land you know this is after he had purchased the sunday ranch and so that's the first time you hear that score and then later on when he's you hear that score again when he's plotting out his pipeline so that score comes in again and then finally at the end of the film which kind of completes his almost lifelong battle with eli by killing him with a with a bowling with a bowling pin (laughs) and then you get that really happy sounding energy score again it's it was so interesting well because even even i think about the last line of the movie i am fished <laughs> like is he finished it, you know it, it, you know you 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 hear that line and there's so many different interpretations of that line it's like i'm finished i'm done for or i'm finished i'm complete yeah uh, it's over now right and and the music would suggest a reading of the line that i am finished means i have i have made i have i have made the achievement i have won right yeah so that was 
so interesting. Fire was like a big element throughout this film as well. Uh, so again, you know, oil and fire were used throughout. Maybe talk about oil first. Oil was such an interesting thing. Oil, I always saw. At, you talked earlier about oil being Daniel's god, and there always seemed to be this baptism of oil, where when the Derek would first strike and he would stand there and he would just be coated in it and hold it up. It it was like he was being baptized as if the oil erupting from the ground for the first time was his religious experience. Yeah. Because there was also that, that moment at the beginning of the film it was his first Derek where he where the one guy makes the mark on baby HW as if, you know, as doing an infant baptism, you know, and I I just noticed that symbolism there. Yeah. With what what does Daniel worship? It's either he worships the oil as oil or he worships the oil as the means for which he will get wealth. Right. And it was the same thing when he when Daniel had basically attacked Eli when Eli had come and said, hey, when are we going to get our $10,000 that you promised us? And, and he just started slapping him and punching him. And then he basically ended up rolling around with him in a pool of oil on top of the ground. And it was it was like kind of his way of saying, you know, again, with the whole theme about the false prophet, you know, you're a false prophet, but here's the God that you need to be baptized by, which was the oil. And he basically rubbed it all over him and shoved it in his mouth. I mean, it was, it, it's it's uh, definitely, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson's playing around with something there when it comes to that. Same thing with the fire. Fire was like such a big thing throughout this film. Uh, you know, the whole thing, when he first finds the oil on the Sunday ranch, he takes a little stick into the ground and he gets the oil on the stick and he lights it up. So that, like, it's showing like, you know, the oil, that was like the fire, like confirming that that was the, that was basically the God. That was confirmation that they found his God, which was the oil. Very Prometheus. Very Prometheus. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, we also saw it, you know, when the whole Derek went up on in flames and Daniel, you know, after what had happened to his, you know, to his adopted son, H.W., and was injured. He was back at the well when the whole Derek uh, was up on fire, and he just couldn't stop looking at it. And you just see the the flames just kind of like reflecting off of his face. Uh, it was it was like he was drawn to it. The moth to the flame. Right. But, but you have made comments for in other conversations about it's... It, is fire hell? Is fire temptation? You know, it, it it it's one of those things. When I talk about how I don't rush to go watch movie, it's conversations like this that once again I can look at pieces and I want to watch the movie again because I want to more explore these ideas. I mean, you've had the ability to watch this movie multiple times, and I'm coming off of just an initial viewing, and yet I can see these things off of an initial viewing that I can only imagine the rewards I would get from multiple viewings of this film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 interesting. I mean, fire was also there when he, you know, when Daniel ended up murdering the guy that was pretending to be his half brother. So there, there's a, a really cool thing that, and as we had talked before about this, uh, the little gravesite as he was trying to bury this body, there was a fire centrally located right in the middle of the screen, and then there was this gravesite that was dug. And you had mentioned before when we had talked about this that there was actually like black fluid at the bottom, which you thought was the oil. Right. I thought it was. Super- Seepage. It's seepage so the, the oil. idea that he's he's dumping this dead man into the oil, like right. you you have to na- like I'm ge- going back with your oil as God metaphor. I, I have I I have killed you. I am burying you. I am returning like returning you, you to that, God. Returning you to God. Yes. Yeah. But is it really that way because of the presence of the fire? Does that signal that this is a you know this is not the right God or this right. is not a this is not a holy thing? Yes. Right. Yeah. 
I mean, is the fire representing, you know, the antithesis of God? Is it, is it, is it the devil? And is the oil in juxtaposition of that because that's of the devil, you know? So because it's this black yeah. goo that gives wealth, but then also creates greed and causes problems and doesn't seem to make people happy. People think it will make them happy, but it doesn't make them happy or it makes them temporarily happy. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, there's a lot of really interesting elements, uh, clearly there to try to symbolize certain things and certain themes. And, uh, so that, that certainly for me personally, it kind of begs like another watching at some point down the road, you know, once I kind of let this stew in and, and before I watch it, I will, will try to read up a little bit on it, you know, try to understand a little bit more about what, you know, the director was trying to do with this film. But I, I, I definitely want to kind of take it all in again. Yeah. And, and like I said, I own this movie, so I will be rewatching it at some point. Thankfully it was on really good deal on iTunes. So <laughs> yeah. I was able to pick that up in a bundle, you know, 1999 for five movies versus 1499 for one movie. But, uh, it, it, it's a movie that when I go back to watch it again, I'm going back to study it. I'm not going back to just watch it. Right. And that's the difference. Yeah, no, for sure. There was a, there was one thing that I thought was really cool cinematically that was done in this film. And you, they, they showed a lot of images of like these train tracks going off in a distance into a vanishing point, uh, in this film. And, you know, framed right down the middle of, of, uh, of the picture itself. And I always found that really interesting. You, you had this like great landscape view of this terrain and they did something quite similar with HW after he had lost his hearing and they had the same kind of frame looking off into the distance but it was from the inside of a building so it what you saw on the left and right of the picture were these it, it was just black bars basically because it was the inside of a building that was all in shadow and you couldn't really see anything and so all you saw was instead of like this landscape view you saw this square which to me when I looked at it it immediately made me think like if I was looking this way my eyesight's fine I could see right in front of me but I'm not getting any kind of senses to the left and to the right of me because I don't have the hearing and I thought that was really kind of cool um, I'm guessing it was probably done intentionally but if not it it, it it was it really was kind of a cool way to um, kind of tie in you know what HW might have been feeling at that point in time in his life I would completely agree with that because the the depiction of deafness was always very interesting there like, were moments where the sound would be out because suddenly we're getting it from HW's perspective. Yeah, very muffled sound. You couldn't even hear Daniel Plainview talking to him. Mm -mm. So do you think... Do you think Daniel Plainview, do you think he really had tender feelings for his adopted son? I debate that. I really do. I think it's one of those things you can legitimately question in the film, and I don't feel like there's necessarily a right answer. I don't even think the film necessarily gives you an objective answer to that question. It gives you clues. Like I said, you know, you see him, you know, send the boy off when he's angry, or, you know, he says some very mean, hurtful, spiteful things at the end of the film in the 20s with the adult HW. But I always noticed that those things were always triggered by something else. They were yeah. always triggered by a sense of betrayal. They were always triggered by a sense of competition because there's enough times in this movie where he, like we talked about earlier, those the private moments where there are some real tenderness being shown that there's no reason to put up a show at that point. I think the feelings are there. I just feel like, like any tragic hero, his own faults get in his way. Yeah. That was such a devastating series of dialogue that was coming from him at the end there. You just felt so bad for his, for HW, you know, his, his adopted son and all that. Because, I mean, he just, you know, didn't have a mother. All he knew was basically his adopted father. And to your point, it seemed 
like Daniel was just kind of lashing out at him, was triggered by something. And but like some of the some of the things that he said in the end there, he says, you know, you can't speak. You're an orphan from a basket in the middle of the desert. Bastard from a basket. Yeah. And he says, I took you for no other reason that I needed a sweet face to buy land. You have none of me in you. You're just a bastard from a basket. I mean, those are like some devastating (laughs) words. That's yes. Just absolutely devastating. Right up there with I drank your milkshake. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's like there were moments where, you know, when shortly after the accident, when his son is trying to fall asleep and can't hear anything and he's just kind of mumbling and just he's making noise, but he can't hear himself speak. And and he's laying with him on the, you know, on the floor and he's he's trying to calm him and give him some comfort. And you look at that and like and you made the point that it was like there was nobody else around. Like he didn't have to be like that. He wasn't putting on a show. And so it makes you think that like he did have some tenderness for this kid, you know, but like the at the same time when, you know, he sent him away for a little while and then he came back and he had a teacher there to try to teach him sign language. They never showed him trying to learn sign language. Well, because he never did. He never bothered. He never did. Even in the end, he demonstrated he didn't know any sign language. But yet, you know, Mary, the uh, the daughter of the of the landowner, I mean, he, you know, she was there trying to learn it. So it, it kind of shows you that like either he had these moments of, uh, what am I trying to say? Like these moments of... Tenderness? Vulnerability, I guess, where he he allowed himself to, to love someone or to love some, you know, someone in his life. But they were so few and far between because he immediately, you know, shortly after would just be back on his main focus, you know, mm-hmm. towards his greed. And it makes you wonder, like, so what 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 exactly was it in Daniel Plainview's life that hurt him and damaged him so much? And we only get a hint of it when he's looking through that that uh, that diary or that journal from his real half brother, and out falls a picture of his his own mother, and he weeps about it. So like, there's something, there's some kind of pain in his life that damaged him so so much that it just kind of made him to what he is to become a loner and, and to become somebody that could just focus in on his greed and that's all he can mm-hmm. do so yeah it's it's an interesting character study all throughout this film it's not a movie for everyone but it is a movie worth watching yeah uh like i said even even i don't love the movie but i appreciate the movie and those are two different things yep definitely okay so rankings yeah i'd say um i would rank this a probably a four and a half stars out of five it's not a perfect film and there's well th- so much of this is is done almost perfectly in a film so many aspects of it but i think ultimately i mean again it's it's the the film is about an experience and you know i i had a it was a it was it was an enjoyable film to watch throughout in terms of like the acting performance and watching these very interesting characters and how flawed they are and you know all the stuff that goes with it but ultimately in the end like i I wouldn't give it a perfect five because it's like it is ultimately a kind of a frustrating story and i would just kind of land on an even four like i said all the parts work all the parts are so well executed i just don't have that overwhelming appreciation for the whole as a movie itself and for me it's the story it just it lacks in the story department but once again i don't get the sense that's what the movie was trying to do in the first place no yeah but if i'm still going to talk about personal rankings i'll give it a four out of five yeah i mean it's four out of five is a great film so yes yeah so let's be clear we're not we're not knocking the film at all but it's uh it's up there and especially if you appreciate good acting this is a Daniel Day-Lewis masterpiece. Piece de resistance. I mean, it's yep. it's that man becomes something else. He does. In his performances. Yep. So 
Yeah, he absolutely does. So yeah, there we go. Um, third film under the belt here. Yeah. But this is the moment in time here, Scott, where, as is tra- the tradition on this show, you are going to reveal to me the next film that we are going to watch. Well, I had two I was trying to decide, uh, but okay. they were both by the same writer and one of my favorite writers. Okay, favorite writers. Uh, I'm so, trying to think back. Who are your favorite writers yeah. that are filmmakers? Yeah, I know. But I'll tell you. I'll tell you. So it was it was David Mamet. Okay. So I, I had two movies trying to decide. One I was pretty sure you you you, you had, you'd seen. There was another one. Oh, it's a little, it's very iffy whether you'd seen or not. But I finally made the decision. And so our next movie in a couple of weeks is going to be Glenn Gary Glenn Ross. <sighs> I love that film. That always be closing, Tim. <laughs> always be ABC. ABC. Always be B C closing. Oof. This is a great character study. Wow. I I am so excited about this film. I know, which will be really funny considering that I just gave I just gave There Will Be Blood criticism for being a great character study, but <laughs> eh, on plot. But for me, I guess it's gonna come when it's gonna come and, and, it's, and I'm gonna be honest, it has been a long time since I've watched Glenn Gary Glenn yeah. Ross. But it's Mammoth. I'm sorry. It's, it's like, yeah. it's, it's Mammoth. No, this is, uh, so I mean, I, I could tell you right now, one of the biggest differences that you're going to see in this film compared to, you know, There Will Be Blood is you have a lot more characters interacting. Yes. And so that's something we. Because this movie has a cast. It has a cast. And There Will Be Blood had characters interacting, but the interactions were not pleasant, generally speaking. <laughs> so this one, uh, there's a lot of camaraderie uh, with some of these guys. And it's, it's like a real estate office or something. It's a real estate office. Yeah. 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 But no. it's got, I mean, Jack Lemmon, Al Pacino, Alec Baldwin, Kevin Spacey. Um, I think Alan Arkin. Alan, Alan Arkin. Arkin? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah this, is a, this is a good one. This is going to be a good one. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Wow. I'm, I'm so happy you're picking that film. <laughs> what was the yeah. other one? Uh, House of Games. Okay. I have not seen that one. Uh, that is a great one. And that is not only written by Mamet, it is also directed by Mamet. Okay. Yeah. Refresh Remember, who directed this one? Glengarry Glenn Ross? I don't remember. Like, okay. it's, it's like, it's Glenn Gary Glenn Ross. I don't worry about who directed it. I just think Mamet wrote <laughs> David it. David Mamet, yeah. And my God, if you if you want to just know what David Mamet is all about, all you got to do is watch this film. It is quintessential David yes. Mamet dialogue. I, I think he won the Tony and the Pulitzer for the play and then adapted the screenplay. And we'll, and we'll talk about that. Yeah. I probably am going to pull out my copy of the stage play to do some okay. comparison. James Foley is the director. Okay. Okay. Wow. That's going to be a fun one to watch again. That yeah, is, is. Uh, so many memorable lines from that film. Yes. And what's funny is like not many people have really seen it. Like it's not one of these like enormously popular mainstream films, but yet it gets quoted all the time. All the time. All the time. I mean, it was in Boss Baby. Yeah. I mean, let's be <laughs> honest. They reference it. It gets referenced all like at least that opening monologue, which by the way is only in the movie and not in the play. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mamet wrote that for Alec Baldwin. That okay. character, Alec Baldwin's character does not exist in the play. Okay. Yeah. So little little preview of part of the discussion we'll have when we talk movie. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is probably the only Foley film I've seen. There's not many others. I mean, Who's That Girl was one. That was, I think, with Madonna or something. <laughs> no, no clue. I don't know. That was no. back in 1987. Uh, but like, there's not a lot I've seen. Like Perfect Stranger from 2007. He actually did the Fifty Shades of Grey sequels, Fifty Shades Darker and Fifty Shades Free. Okay. I've seen, I've seen those. Okay. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't seen them. But, but yeah. So, but it's, but this is this is going to be a good one. This is another great one just to watch uh, a, a bunch of actors, extremely talented actors, kind of chewing a scenery. Oh, God, do they ever. Yeah. With, once again, with Mammoth 
dialogue because Mammoth has a style. Yep. You, Mammoth's one of those that you don't, If even if you didn't know who wrote it, if you know Mammoth, you hear someone talking, you're like, Mammoth wrote this, didn't he? Yeah. Oh, Jack Lemon, did you mention him? I should have if I didn't. Yeah, he's in this as well. Oh, yeah, he is. Jack yeah. Lemon. Yeah, I just remember, the one I remember about this film is uh, lots of rain and some yes. great kind of like jazz. Uh, what, what's that type of jazz called? But it's like a, um, a mellow jazz. Mellow jazz, yeah. yeah. Mellow jazz, lots of rain. Yep, and uh, and lots of good dialogue. And lots of angry men. <laughs> <laughs> lots of angry men, so. All right, well, I'm glad you picked that one. Uh, and uh, I've got one in mind for next week, so I've, I've got I've got a few running through my head, so um, Sweet. I'm going to have to formulate that and get that all figured out this week. Don't worry, guys. We've been talking. We'll pick something fun yeah. eventually. <laughs> eventually, yeah. But these are, I mean, we're picking films that kind of, like, hang with us. Oh, yeah. There's some meat on them bones. There's some meat on these bones. These are the kind of films that, you know, for us, like, you watch it, and then you you sit you sit there and you it just kind of like keeps creeping back into your head like you know the films that come back and make you think about them some more and debate things i mean those are the kind of films that at least we're starting off kind of doing we'll, we'll probably mix it up here in a little bit but yeah you know, but yeah very good all right well guys that is it for this review uh we'd like to thank you guys so much for listening to this hope you enjoyed the review uh hope you enjoyed the film as much as i did and, and scott did uh in different aspects but uh it's it's definitely a film worth watching no doubt about it so of course reach out to us you can find us on Twitter at Squawcast Movies I can be found at ScottDC27 yep and then on Twitter you can find me at Alan Fire and of course you can email the show at squadcastmedia at gmail.com we would love to hear from you guys I, I'm genuinely enjoying all the feedback that we get on some of these reviews and uh, you know especially some of these like really deeper films um, that you know that, that tend to kind of hang with you and make you think I, I like hearing what you guys have to say about it and don't forget you can find us on Vero Facebook and of course on our website squadcastmedia.com our patreon is at patreon.com slash squadcastmedia that's going to be it for this week and so to all of our listeners we hope to see you at the movies all right see you guys later